You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to you all. Come on in. Wonderful of you to return to my arms. I have some fabulous B-movie delights to throw your way today. A trio of trash from the bottom of Hollywood's barrel, but are they worth seeking out? Listen on as the answer may surprise you. Okay, okay, hands are in the... Out! What the f***? My hands were up and everything. Hi, fellas. Hi, Roy. Tell this kid, would you? So basically, he asks me to put my hands up, and so I do, and then he shoots me up the... Partners, how would you like to surprise your pals like that? Well, you can with my new Roy Rogers quick shooter hat. Oh, Roy. You're selling hats at the expense it's of my... It's my ideal. And here's how the quick shooter hat works. Just press this secret button right here, and a replica of an authentic Western pistol pops out and fires. Roy, please take this seriously. Because of your little assassin, I'm not going to be able to take a... Sh- it's your secret weapon, even when they think you're unarmed. So get Ideal's new Roy Rogers quick shooter hat at your favorite store today. And you'll always be ready for anything. Oh, you know what? You can kiss my... Ask for Ideal's new Roy Rogers quick shooter hat. I left my gal in Chickasha. Left that gal and went away. In my heart is a melody. And the darned old song keeps telling me. Get right back to Chickasha. To that gal and never stray. There's a slick chick awaiting in my Chickasha. Home from my Chickasha gal. Just can't wait till 
I get back to the girl I know in the chicken shay shack. There's a slick chick waiting in the chicken shay home from the chicken shay. And that was Roy Anything for a Buck Rogers with My Chickasha Girl. <gasps> Love it. Hey, my honour to once again announce that a new edition of The Dark Pages is out. Did you know that The Dark Pages is now in its 15th year of publication? Very impressive. Well, this issue is packed with the usual noir treats, such as a review of 1956's Bob Le Flambeur, 1950's Armoured Car Robbery, and 1950's awesome Quicksand, starring Mickey Rooney. You also get a look at the Noir Archive Volume 2 Blu-ray box set, featuring Five Against the House and The Crooked Web. Plus, there's a spotlight on Pat O'Brien and his appearance in the 1946 noir crack-up. You can get your copy now by going to www.allthatnoir.com and in case you didn't know, you can get it electronically or via hard copy. Rush on over now. Oh my goodness, look at this. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. Oh, yes. Back into the murky magic of the question pot we slide. And the first query dragged up from the sputum is from Laura Roberts, who asks... With the new miniseries about Betty and Joan, The Feud, I was looking back at my favourite movies from both superstars and wondered what are your favourites by Betty and Joan and who did it better and who failed Monk? Well, cripes, what a lot of questions in one go. Okay, so my favourite Betty Davis movie is probably The Letter. I think it's a masterpiece. Favourite Joan Crawford movie is going to get me murdered, I'm sure, but the performance that always sticks out for me the most is the first one I saw when I was very young. It was Sunday afternoon, and I saw it on TV, and I fell head over heels in love with her immediately. There have been finer performances, I think, but my personal favourite is Grand Hotel, where she played Flemshen. My goodness, my poor heart has never recovered. Who did it better? Who did what better? (laughs) Both such incredibly diverse actresses and both so utterly individual. Let us just say that Betty was the best Betty and Joan was the only Joan. Thank you, Laura, and have this freshly baked Canterbury. Canterbury. Next question is from Michael Barley Abbott, who writes, In my early years until I was ten, we lived in South Africa and our main source of entertainment was the radio. There was one show that I used to love that I remember being quite scary called something like The Eyes of Tracy Dark or The Something of Tracy Dark. Have you ever come across this show or anything that might sound like it? I'd love to listen to an episode again to see if it's as good as I remember. Well, Michael, I did some snooping and it turns out there was such a thing as Springbok Radio and it ran a show called The Mind of Tracy Dark. Now, I did my best to track down an episode for you, but Springbok Radio went out of action in 1985, so it looks like none of their catalogue was uploaded for today's ears. But at least you have a name to go along with, and Godspeed your search for any existing episode, sir. The Mind of Tracy Dark it is, so go to it 
and let this Irish jigsbury show you the way. Lastly, a question so fresh that it was almost warm and still bearing its umbilical cord, yes, just plopped into my cradling hands from Carolyn King. Carolyn writes, Hi Adam, thank you for your wonderful podcast. I am now fully up to date and absolutely love every episode of Attaboy C and the Secret History of Hollywood. Well, thank you, Carolyn. You're certainly either very kind or very drunk right now. Either's okay, so long as you don't pull out a knife and demand my wallet. Carolyn continues, First of all, I would like to request, on behalf of the film historians of the University of Kent, a Canterbury Canterbury. It's time one of your greetings was sent to the cathedral city that is our home. Okay, let's try that. I feel holier than Sonny Corleone at a toll bridge. My question, says Carolyn, as a fellow classic cinema addict, I've now watched more than 500 films from that era in the past three years, as you also must have done. Some of my notes are haphazardly kept in notebooks, some are on small cue cards, but I haven't yet developed an efficient way of keeping track of the films I have seen. I have a terrible memory for film titles particularly. So I was wondering how you keep track of the films you've seen. Do you have a great system I can steal? Well, hell sorry, yes, Bobby, I do, Carolyn King, whose name repeatedly reminds me of Carol King's Tapestry. I feel the earth move on the Carolyn, have you ever heard of Letterboxd? Well, if not, go to letterboxd.com. That is spelled letterboxd without an E in boxed. So L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. And there you shall find me and all the like-minded folks who rate the films they watch as they watch them. You can follow me and I'll follow you back. My username is Clarence, all one word. And you can keep up with my movie recommendations and I can keep up with yours. It's a really great way to see what users really think of movies. It's like TripAdvisor for films. So go forth, Carolyn King, and begin your letterbox journey. And may you be the first to carry the Canterbury Canterbury with you. And remember that if you have a question and you'd like it answered, then go to www.attaboyclarence.com, scroll down the homepage, and fling the thing into the question pot. And I'll answer the blighter right here. I thank you. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinking cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Bongo, 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 I don't wanna leave the Congo, oh no, 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 no. 
no, 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 no. Bingo, bango, bungle, I'm so happy in the jungle, and I'll tell you so you will know. Each morning, a missionary advertised with neon signs. He tells the native population that civilization is fine. Every educated savages holler from a bamboo tree. That civilization is the thing for me to see. Oh, bungle, 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 I don't want to leave the Congo, oh, no, 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 no. Bingle, bangle, bungle, I'm so happy in the jungle, I refuse to go. Don't want no bright lights, false teeth, doorbells, landlords, I'll make it clear. That no matter how they coax me, I'll stay right here. Now I look through a magazine the missionary's wife concealed. I see the people who are civilized bang you with automobiles. At the movies they have got to pay many coconuts to see. Uncivilized pictures that the newsreel takes of me. So... Bongo, 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 I don't want to leave the Congo, oh, no, 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 no. They hurry like savages to get aboard an iron train. And though it's smoky and it's crowded, they're too civilized to complain. When they've got two weeks vacation, they hurry to vacation ground. <laughs> They swim and they fish, but that's what I do all year round. So, bongo, 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 I don't wanna leave the Congo, oh no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Bingo, bongo, bongo, I so happy in the jungle, I refuse to go. <laughs> don't want no bright lights. False teeth. Doorbells. Landlords. Penthouse, the pit streetcars, taxis, we make it clear. They have things like the atom bomb. So I think I stay where I am. Civilization, no, 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 no. I stay right here. Wonderful Louis Prima with civilization and more jungle treats coming up later. I'm a very lucky boy. I've got a Tootsie Roll Pop. I hope Tootsie Roll Pop isn't prison slang. And I'm a very lucky girl. I've got a Tootsie Roll Pop. Tootsie Roll Pop. Google's first results are, are Tootsie Roll Pops bad for you? And how many licks does it take to... All of the kids in the neighborhood say Tootsie Roll Pops are triple good. Triple good. <laughs> Triple good. Sure, because... One, on the outside there's a delicious hard candy. Two, on the inside there's a chewy, chocolatey Tootsie Roll center. Please be wholesome, please be wholesome, please be wholesome. And three, a Tootsie Roll top has that extra special flavor-giving goodness. We're in the clear, people. Because only a Tootsie Roll top is two candies in one pop. Ouch. 
Ouch. And you remind your mom to buy the 50-roll Pops Party Pack. Ten delicious Pops in assorted flavors. And look, there's a game of puzzle on the back, too. So remember, all of the kids in the neighborhood say 50-roll Pops is triple good. Triple good. You'll love 50-roll Pops. Great to know. Hey, by the way, it was my privilege to appear on the marvellous Soho Bites podcast, where I talked to my good friend Dominic DeLaghi about two Hitchcock thrillers that bookended his career, The Lodger and Frenzy. We actually recorded it on the evening of the meetup in August, and you can hear my voice growing steadily slurrier as the conversation continued, so apologies for that, but it's a cool little conversation. And Soho Bites is fast shaping up to be one of the essential podcast listens these days, so do subscribe to that. But for now, let's get into some movies, and not just any movies, some killer filler. There's a fine line between awfully brilliant and brilliantly awful. Thankfully, that line is nowhere to be seen in the first movie I have for you today, The Creeper from 1948. Yes, we're well over the line here. No doubt as to where this one lands. Its mark of quality is that it was made by the powerhouse movie studio Reliance Pictures. Nope, me neither. But at least it has some stars in it, right? Oh, yes, it has some stars. Eduardo Cinelli is in it. You know him, right? He played the lead in one of the most gloriously terrible movie serials ever, The Mysterious Dr. Satan, which you must have seen, right? He was in other classics such as The Wife of Monte Cristo, The Food Gamblers, Super Sleuth, and Joe Paluca Champ. All movies that hold on to hallowed places in everyone's list of the all-time greats. In actual fact, you will know him if you see him. He has a very sinister face. Well, he's putting that face to remarkably effective use in 1948's The Creeper, which incidentally doesn't feature the Rondo Hatton villain The Creeper. This is an entirely different type of creeper. This is, I kid you not, about a scientist who develops a serum that turns someone into a killer cat. So tell me you still have that ridiculous aversion to cats. It isn't ridiculous. It's... I hate to be reminded of that horrible place. That's all over now, Nori. You were delirious, darling. Hallucinations induced by your fever. It'll be different here. Come now. Give us a smile. In the interest of science, of course. Yes, Cinelli plays Dr. Van Glock, of course he does, who may or may not be the man responsible for a series of gruesome murders. When I say gruesome, what happens is that the victims seem to be killed by a man wearing a very furry glove. He's terrific with the mice. Just hold them in check when they get loose. Creep is very intelligent. You're not kidding. Sometimes I get the horrifying impression he's smarter than I am. Weirdly, this movie seems to have been heavily influenced by Val Luton's Cat People. Honestly, it's like someone watched that movie and thought, Cats, wow, they're creepy, right? Let's copy that. Only they didn't really seem to believe that, because instead of dread and tension and mystery and the internal psychosexual drama that emerges from a marriage without sex, you have a sleepwalking girl with no eyelids who'll come back to her, several sinister scientists, no thrills, and a killer who always announces his arrival by reaching through an open window wearing a Lon Chaney cast-off furry glove. 
I love the sets, by the way. This is a film in which two laboratories exist next door to each other. One is the Cavini Borden Research Lab, and the other is the Reed Van Glock Research Lab, although hilariously, they're both exactly the same room. Literally, a character walks into one, has a conversation, then walks out and into the other one, and it's the same room, just with a table shoved along a bit. I love the writer's reasons for everything too. So apparently the scientists went all the way to the West Indies to experiment on cats because they're developing a luminous material that can be used by surgeons. Great. Without man, there wouldn't even be a science. Trouble with you is you're not a scientist. You're a philosopher. In our world, there's no place for philosophers. That's precisely what's wrong. There's no place for the philosopher. The man whose sole function it is just to think. How wonderful to have nothing to do but just to think. Why did you go to the West Indies for this? And why did you experiment on cats? Never explain. And to remind us that Eduardo Cinelli is sinister, the camera inexplicably cuts to him looking sinister at all times. Yes, two people are having dinner at home discussing needlepoint. The camera cuts back to Cinelli and his lab glaring out of the window. Two people in a different building talking about furniture, cut to Ginelli glaring out of a window. Comedy scene with rotund policemen at traffic lights, cut back to Ginelli glaring in a sinister way out of the window. It's brilliant. We get it. He's sinister. But nothing, nothing is more laughable in this movie than the lead actress Janice Wilson and her range of facial expressions, which are made all the more difficult by the fact that she has no eyelids. Yes, you heard me, I don't know how she manages it, but she spends the entire film with her eyes wide open, staring blankly, and I do mean blankly, at any situation into which she is thrust. I've never seen anything like it. Her eyes must sting so bad. It's fine when she's supposed to be looking at something in wide-eyed terror, but when she's having a simple conversation about shipping containers, her wide eyes do add an element of horror that simply isn't needed. It's totally bizarre and something you really need to witness for yourself. It's like she's being constantly reminded that she's left the gas on. And so for many reasons, none of them good, I do recommend you go to seek out 1948's The Creeper, a brilliantly awful version of Cat People, made by the same folks who gave you such classics as The Devil Bat and starring Eduardo Sinister Cinelli and Janice Bug-Eyes Wilson. It's a beautiful disaster. Well, many seem to think that Quentin Tarantino owns the yard when it comes to revisionist history fairy tales, what with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood rewriting characters and events, and more famously perhaps with Inglorious Bastards, the climax of which sees Brad Pitt's gang of Nazi hunters taking out the entire Third Reich, including Hitler. But Tarantino wasn't the first to play this game. Oh, no, 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 sorry, Bob. Back in 1943, at the height of the war, Universal Studios came out with a very similar fable entitled The Strange Death of Adolf Hitler, starring Ludwig Donath and Gail Sondergaard. I'm Hitler. Hi, Hitler. Will you look this over and sign it? I'll pick it up tomorrow. That's all right. What's the matter, Saupus? Don't you ever smile? I beg your pardon. What did you say, Herr Graub? Me? I didn't say a thing. 
<laughs> Up to your old tricks. <laughs> yes, Austrian Franz Huber, played by Ludwig Donath, is a bit of a dab hand at impersonating voices. He's constantly playing practical jokes on people by impersonating them, as you heard in that extremely hilarious clip. In fact, one of his favorite impressions, and also one of his most uncanny, is that of the Führer himself. In fact, it's such an accurate impression that the Gestapo soon get wind of this man's remarkable talent and decide to enlist Huber as a Hitler double with the help of a little of the old plastic surgery in order to keep the real Hitler safe at public engagements. But that's not me! Excellent job, Professor. Thank you. It was comparatively easy. You can't tell them apart. Oh, now I'm beginning to understand. My nose, my face, they weren't injured. No, they were not. You lied to me. You butchered me up to look like him. Why? To make your face fit your voice. Now you are perfect. Now you can serve your Führer better than any other living man whenever he sees fit to have you appear for him. You can talk like him, you look like him. And I can be killed instead of him. Yes, you might. Can you conceive any greater honor? Any more heroic death? Yes, after perhaps the worst queer eye makeover in history, Franz has been turned into a double of Adolf Hitler, and for a while, it looks like he might go along with the Nazis' plans, but secretly, Franz is plotting something big. If he can get close enough to the real Hitler, then what's to stop him assassinating the man he's supposed to be copying and taking his place? And if he does that, then maybe the war can be brought to an end. I'm going to kill him. Franz, there is still some hope. I'll get you out of the country. All of you. But there's a snag in the plans. You see, Franz left behind a wife, Anna, who was told by the Gestapo that her husband had been executed. Since his apparent death, their two small sons have been indoctrinated into the Hitler youth and have slowly become corrupted. Blaming Hitler for the death of her husband and the ruination of her children, Anna decides to put her own assassination plot into action. There must be some man, Bauer, some department somebody left in this country i could appeal to no frana there isn't anyone left on the surface only under it and we'll get you your children back in the long run wait for that day don't try anything on your own bar whatever happens marbach mustn't know anything about it what are you going to do i've heard that hitler sometimes pardons people on personal appeal I'm told there's always a group of petitioners who hand their requests to his aides. But Frau Anna, don't you know such incidents are staged? They want to play him up as a saint, as a benefactor, an idealist, and people fall for it. And then there is another school of thought that says he alone is the evil spirit. And if he were killed, this nightmare would be over like that. Such an interesting piece of hokum, this. Firstly, the title is very attention-grabbing, and the fact that aside from Gail Sondergaard, it really has no big names in there. Most of the cast are European, so my first impression of this film was that it was very much a middle finger to Hitler from America at the time. 
What surprised me most, though, was how brutal it is. I mean, I honestly expected it to be very cheesy, very hokey, but it contains a few scenes that genuinely shocked me. The first of these is a scene in which one of Anna's neighbors seeks refuge from the soldiers who've been billeted in her house. They billeted two soldiers in my house, men just back from the Russian front. They are like, like animals. I pleaded with them. I told them my husband fell on the same front three months ago. I explained how I cry my eyes out for him. I begged them to leave me alone. But they wouldn't listen. I ran to the police and asked for help. Wouldn't they do anything? No. They told me soldiers on leave from those shell holes were entitled to special consideration. Did you lock the door bolded? Yes, I did. This is sickening. We can't sink any lower. Strong stuff for a 1943 B-movie, really, and the scenes that follow are equally as tough. Then the story of Anna and Franz's children, which when the film began, I honestly had mapped out in my head. These children are being coerced into the Nazi way of thinking, and only a supremely noble act will rescue them from their downward spiral into Nazism. Again, have to say, the film pulled the rug out from under me. This doesn't play out the way you think it will. And the whole movie, despite its somewhat sensational premise and B-movie roots, really does end with a sucker punch that turns the entire story from a thriller into a tragedy. I was so impressed with this. Far more powerful than I realized it would be. Far tougher than I was expecting. And ultimately a far greater piece of propaganda than its lurid title may have you believe. It's hard to track down, but if you can... I definitely recommend you seek out 1943's The Strange Death of Adolf Hitler. Very impressive. One of the most memorable films I watched in the past fortnight came in the shape of 1933's Jungle Bride, starring Anita Page and Charles Starrett, directed by Harry O'Hoyt, which sounds like the noise I make when I stub my toe. I knew I was going to love this film from the very first moment when I heard the music, which is obviously just some tune the band knows. But isn't it uncanny how you can make any song sound like a jungle song when you put a tribal beat over it? I mean, it works with everything. I guess I kind of like the way you help me escape Now the day bleeds into nightfall So anyway, the story here is about plucky Doris Evans, played by Anita Page, whose brother is on trial for murder. Thing is, he swears he's innocent. And from his jail cell, he's named the real killer as Gordon Wayne, played by Charles Starrett. But he's gone on the run around the world. So obviously, Doris does what anyone would do in this situation. She snags the arm of her reporter fiancé and gives chase. In fact, she catches up with Gordon off the coast of Africa and placing him under some sort of weird citizen's arrest, which basically amounts to telling this supposed murderer that if it's all right with him, could he stop being on the run and come back and be electrocuted for his crimes? And of course he says he will. I love the boyfriend Franklin's ultra-passive-aggressive ways of reminding Gordon that he's on his way home to be killed too. Wait a minute, I'll go ask Franklin. 
Say, Copper, uh, Gordon wants to know what rhymes with care. <laughs> Electric chair. But while they're on their way home, the ship, of course, smashes into some rocks. Well, kind of. I mean, a toy boat sort of bumps into some pebbles in a bathtub. The result is that everyone on the ship is killed. Except for, of course, Doris, her boyfriend Franklin, Gordon Wayne, and his best pal Eddie. Thrilling shipwreck too, by the way. The filmmakers wisely choose not to spend a single penny on recreating the horror of a real shipwreck. Instead, they cut away from their 1933 studio movie and intercut it with some horrendously grainy stock footage from what looks like the 17th century. So there's your setup anyway. A girl is trapped on a jungle island with the man whose crime has landed her brother on death row and her boyfriend's with her. And what will happen when she starts to doubt that Gordon is a murderer and may in fact be a very nice guy? And what will her boyfriend do when he sees Doris growing a little too close to the man she was supposed to be condemning to death? I don't know what's happened to you, Doris. One month in the jungle and look what it's done to you. It's done things to all of us, hasn't it, Donna? Well, at least I've kept my self-respect. I don't understand you. You know what I mean. Accepting the friendship of a man like Wayne. Well, what would you expect me to do? I think Gordon has acted admirably. Gordon? Oh, so that's how it is now. Yes, that's how it is. And you're right. The jungle has done things to me. Before we came here, I thought he was a beast. And now I suppose he sprouted wings. No, but he has proven himself to be a man. There are some wonderful pieces of dialogue here. Picture the scene. You've just escaped a burning ship. You've watched your fellow passengers from 1643 drown and die. You've swum miles to shore. You emerge, with your tie on, of course, to a beach on some deserted island. You're probably going to starve to death. It's enough to turn a man into a lunatic, which makes this response very puzzling. I wonder where we are. Somewhere on the coast of Africa. No sign of anything. That's tough, all right. Or sometimes the dialogue just makes absolutely no sense at all. If you can get some wood, we'll build a fire and dry our clothes out. Okay, Africa. Of course, with a scantily clad Anita Page to fight over, it isn't long before the old masculinity wars begin between Gordon and Franklin. We might as well face the fact that the four of us have been thrown together here in the jungle. Let's make the best of it. I thought that... Now, just a minute, Doris. The wreck hasn't changed anything. Oh, yes, it has, Franklin. There's only one law here. No cops, no jails. That's the law of the jungle. Ugh. Calm down, Gord. You've only been there five minutes. God, I'm embarrassed for you. Of course, when you stick a blonde bombshell like Anita Page into a pre-code jungle movie made by Monogram Pictures, it's inevitable that she'll be in a certain state of undress for some of the film. I was pretty taken aback at just how undressed she gets, I have to say. There's a scene where she changes at a river in which she definitely swings into view, shall we say? And then, of course, with her dress torn open at the front, Harry O'Hoyt directs her to lean down and pick up various things from the jungle floor so that she spills out of her dress. It's quite prolonged, too, I have to say. It isn't often that I put my hand in front of my young son's eyes when we watch a movie like this, but I felt compelled to in this case. You definitely see a lot more of Anita Page than you think you will. As for the Anita Page wardrobe department, fret not, because thankfully... 
A ladies-sized, figure-hugging and pristine white sailor suit washes up on the shore, so she sticks that on, while the guys go topless and cook some chickens in a tin bucket, not a joke, while being pelted with cutthroat razors, not a joke, by a pair of chimpanzees, who are obviously in another film, not a joke. It's followed by a scene in which Gordon fights a lion by punching it until it dies, again using the magic of stock footage. Yes, look out. It's a lion from 70 years ago. So the film just kind of meanders along. Doris and the boys spend a whole day building a house out of sticks. Not a joke. Complete with chairs, tables, Venetian blinds, and a roll-down door. Not a joke. It even has uh, window panes. And she amuses herself by talking to parrots. Again, not a joke. Yep, she's speaking Parachuguese. My absolute favourite part of this movie is not that the entire single set looks like a living room with some pot plants in it, or the fact that she never takes her high heels off in the jungle, but the song. You know how old Gord was straight in there with his Law of the Jungle bullshit? Well, prepare to have that moment trumped. Yes, so delighted is he that he's slowly starving to death on an island that he not only writes a song, but performs it. Through the night, the wind is sighing While the tropic moon is dying Hearts are born anew that's the call of the jungle. Though you cannot see or hear me, if you seem to feel you're near me, you have heard it too. That's the call of the jungle. Where are the cares of yesterday? They're gone like a bird on the wing. Love comes but once, take it while you may. Who knows what tomorrow may bring? The jungle seems to say, awaken. Hope cannot remain forsaken. I say he performs it. Charles Starrett just kind of sits there, hitting his guitar and moving his mouth like some kind of lanky, epileptic ventriloquist dummy. It's so badly dubbed, it's like the Shaw Brothers did it. So how are they going to get away, I hear no one ask. Well, fortunately, half the ship didn't sink, and drifting into the bay, it arrives carrying the half-dead body of the captain. Hooray! Which leads to perhaps the most inappropriate response to a tragic story I've ever heard. A storm broke me loose. I have been drifting... In the current, I saw smoke on the horizon, 
several times. We were off our course when we struck. My ribs are broken. My leg is badly injured. And it's too late now. Captain, is it still possible for you to marry people? I mean, you can't call this film art. You really can't. You can call it a fever dream. But I have to say, I was utterly enthralled by it. And I've been singing the earworm that is Call of the Jungle all week since. So if you fancy watching a love triangle set alongside some rhododendron bushes and some stock footage that never even comes close to being thrilling, then do seek out 1933's Jungle Bride. That's the call of the jungle. No old-time radio series had perhaps a greater collection of B-movie plots in one place than Quiet, please, one of the all-time greats. Take today's selection, for instance. Its name is Beezer's Cellar, which tells the tale of a gang of robbers who choose to hide their loot in a cellar that's supposedly haunted by the ghost of a six-fingered man. Quiet, please, and I'll see you afterwards. The American Broadcasting Company presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for today is called Deezer's Cellar. I looked at Marlena. Marlena looked at me when we heard this old guy talking about Beezer's cellar. Get a load of this, Marlena, I said. And she picked up a French fry and ate it very quiet while we listened to the old guy. He was sounding off to another old guy. And the other old guy couldn't get a word in edgeways. So this here Beezer, they always called him Six Fingers Beezer, see, on account of he had six fingers on each hand. He never did build his house. He got the cellar dug, and then he up and hung himself in it. Well, I don't know why, rightly, but there was some talk about the cellar being dug into a cursed ground. Well, I want to tell you, there's been mighty odd doings up there, all right, George? Up at Beezer's cellar. What? Well, fires and lights at night. And don't you tell me Foxfire... I've seen Foxfire, and I know it when I see it. And this here ain't Foxfire. Hmm? Sixty-odd years ago. And moans, and hooting, and hollering all over the place at night. And trees a-waving their branches when they ain't no wind. No, sir, that's a real deserted place. You couldn't get me up there with a ten-foot pole. That there place is haunted, sonny. I want another look there. No, sir. Ghosts and spirits and crawling things that hoot and holler. They ain't in my line. You getting that, Marlena? Gosh, no. Ain't been up there since I was a kid in short pants. A clique of us went up there one afternoon in the fall... And we thought we seen a skeleton laying down there on the floor of the cellar, and we cut and run. Never stopped till we got to the C and A tracks. Yes, sir, Sonny. Uh, thank you for the root beer. That there's a place to shun, and by golly, people shun it. Well, hey, it's right out past the cemetery. 
where you turn off to the strict fadden road. But it'd take quite a lot of finding. About three mile east, there's a big elm tree that was struck by lightning. Come on, Marlena, I said. We sort of drifted out of the place. The car was parked up under a big tree by the side of the road. Pete was sitting there with the P-38 pistol he brought back from the war. With his feet on the suitcase with the $82,000. We stopped to count it on the side street in Wilmington on the way down from Chicago. We watched the state cops go on past us down 66. Then we switched the license plates and jogged on after him. Pete wasn't taking any chances. He had the snoot of that P-38 in our faces the minute we walked up. You uh, ought to make some kind of noise or something. I might not let you have it. Put the gun away for a minute and move over. Get in, Marlene. Did you bring me a sandwich? Barbecued pork, are they? Uh, I could eat it raw. What's cooking? Stanley's got an idea. What now? You're scared of ghosts, Pete. I ain't scared of anything. Well, that's good. What's this about ghosts? We might run into a couple of them where we're going. An old man with six fingers on each hand. Oh, a cop? He hanged himself 60 years ago. What is all this double talk? Quit hollering and eat your sandwich. Listen, what are you figuring on? I found a place to leave the bag with the money for a while. While things cool off. Leave the bag? What'd you think I was going to do? In that cellar? What cellar? Stanley, are you crazy? Listen, how'd you like to let me in on this, huh? Listen, this is a haunted cellar, see? The old man says nobody ever goes there. They're scared to go there. So am I. Oh, can up, Marlena. There ain't anything to be scared of. Only ghosts. Well, you can always go riding around the countryside if you want to ask him some take cop to take us. It's always the way with you amateurs. I'm no amateur. I shot the guys, didn't I? Who told you to shoot? Who told you which ones to shoot? Well, what are you beefing about? I didn't say anything. Well, I wished I'd never got into this. For a nice chunk of $82,000, you wish that. Well, but do we have to do it this way, Stanley? You think of a better way? Where is this place? Two miles from here. What are we waiting for? That's my boy. Oh, we won't have to stay around there long, will we, Stanley? Why, listen, baby, you think I'd go there at all if I didn't have a hot suitcase to take care of? Leave right away. I will. <laughs> we all will. Whether old Six Finger shows up to scare us or not. Don't, Stanley. Which way, Stanley? Well, the old fellow said something about a road. Thick, sodden road. Well, well, look now, but the reason I was asking is there's a motorcycle coming down the road back there. Where? I was just kind of interested in our next move. Not that I haven't got ideas of my own. Now, put that gun away. I was only going to ask him a question. But Pete didn't have to ask him a question. Marlena stepped out of the car, and she walked right up to the man in the blue suit, and she said... How do I get to Srikfaden Road, officer? Now, the officer told her, just as polite as the head waiter. <laughs> He'd have been awful surprised if he'd known what was pointing at him while he was being so nice to the cute little redhead. Eh, what do you know? No one hurt him, I always say. And we relaxed. Well, so we found the road all right. We drove along slow, 
Little old Model A Ford with Indiana license plates. And we were pretty quiet. I don't know what Pete was thinking about in Marlena, but I know what I was thinking about. Trees hanging low over the road. Trees that moved their branches when there wasn't any wind. And lights in the night that wasn't foxfire. Uh, whatever foxfire is. And pretty soon there was a great big old elm tree alongside the road, and it looked as if it had been struck by lightning. So we stopped. And then there wasn't any trees waving their branches or any funny noises. But we found Beezer's cellar. I wish we hadn't. There was the elm tree that was struck by lightning. And there was a fence that we busted down. There was a kind of path. There had been a path once. And it was all I could do in the dark to bust my way through the underbrush with a flashlight. <laughs> and Marlene and Pete waiting in the car ready to go into a smooching act if an inquisitive cop pulled up. <laughs> smooching. With a hiney pistol aimed under his arm over the side of the car. It was a lot easier getting the $82,000 than it was crawling through the bushes looking for Beezer's cellar. I pretty near fell into it. It didn't smell very good. There was water in spots in the bottom. Then it looked haunted enough. Kind of felt my back hair coming up, but I said, Yeah, well, it's better than one of these little iron rooms they got down at Stateville. And I went back after Pete and Marlena. We run the car off the road, hoping nobody would see it. We lugged the suitcase back through the underbrush. I jumped down. Pete and Marlena climbed down after me. Good deal, huh? Looks haunted, all right. I don't like this, Stanley. Well, let's stash the bag and get out of here. How are you going to do it? We'll dig a hole, jerk, and bury it. What with? Well, didn't you... Oh, first. Oh, wait a minute, Stanley. I see something over there against the wall. Flash the light. I thought I saw it when I climbed down. Huh. A shovel. Huh. Ain't that convenient. Maybe the ghosts left it here. Cut that out. <laughs> Scare you, kid? Well, cut it out. Yeah, thanks, Marlena. Uh, hold the light, Pete. Uh, no, turn it out quick. There's a car coming. much noise? You want to dig? I'll hold the light. Wait. What's the matter? Shut up. Thought I heard somebody. Go on, dig. Pick up the bricks. Okay. Let me hold the light and you can both dig. We'll get out of here quicker. Okay. Don't do that, Stanley. <laughs> uh, nobody gonna hurt you, kid. No, but... Here, come back with that light. Come on, let's stop kidding around. I'm going to sit down. You'll get all wet. No, there's an old busted chair here. Oh, for the love of... All right, all right. There. Yeah, now let's go. <gasps> now what's the matter? Stanley, you didn't sit in this chair, did you? You kidding? Pete? What's the matter? Somebody's been sitting in it. The seat's still warm. And 
she dropped the flashlight and it rolled down into the hole we'd been digging. The light went bouncing down and down and down and down. Hundreds of feet we could watch it, twisting and turning and lighting up the sides of a deep, smooth shaft that seemed to have no bottom at all. And there we were in the dark down in Beezer's cellar, the darkness pushing down on us. There was a sound somewhere, way far off, that seemed to come up to us from the bottomless pit we had opened. And I swore. I lit a match. Pete and Marlena were leaning over the edge of the hole. Marlena jumped back and she started screaming. And she wouldn't stop till I slapped her face a couple of times. I said, cut it out. Do you want all the cops in the state to come running? She grabbed me by the arm. She was yammering like a baby. Passed out cold. Only the quick grab the peep made kept her from falling right down the hole. Well, Pete and I slapped some of the dirty water in her face. Pretty soon she sat up. She started to cry. And it started to rain. Look, Pete said. Look, I don't go for this, Stanley. Scared of ghosts. Oh, nuts. There's no ghosts. But I think we can find a better place to bury our dough than Mr. Beezer's cellar. Cut it out, Marlene. No, no, let's get out of here. I tell you, I know. You saw a reflection of the match down this old well. Well? Sure, that's what it is. It's a well. <laughs> Some of these old houses had a well right in the cellar. I, I remember it from when I was a kid. And we busted into the well. I saw eyes looking at me. Cut it out. You didn't either. We'd have been in a swell fix if we dropped the suitcase down the well. Yeah, I'll say we would. Yeah, let's dig another hole. <laughs> Shut up, Marlena. Let's get out of this. I'm getting soaked. Yes, let's get out of here, Stanley. <laughs> Go on, you two, if you want. I'm going to get this suitcase planted. Come on, Pete. Yeah. Hurry up, Stanley. I'll hurry. You know something, Stanley? Huh? Uh, know what? Something's happened. What are you whispering about? Listen, Stanley, I, I've been all around the walls of this place, and that busted place in the walls where we came down ain't there anymore. What are you? Well, I'm telling you, Stanley. Light a match and look for yourself. And I struck a match. And I shielded it carefully in my hands. And I looked around the walls of Beezer's cellar in the drizzling rain... And you know what? There wasn't anything out of that place that I could see. The walls, all four of them, was as smooth as glass. And from way, way down deep in the earth, I could just see a little bitty gleam from that flashlight. And I thought to myself, I, 
see what Marlena meant. It does look like eyes now, don't it? Down at the bottom of a musty old cellar in the middle of the night and a hole in the floor that goes down, I haven't got any idea how far. And rain and a hysterical woman and a suitcase with $82,000. No way to get out of the place. Great, huh? Well, you can explain anything, can't you? A hole in the floor. Sure, that was a well. The eyes she thought she saw. Sure, that was a flashlight reflecting on the water down there. And the way we couldn't get out. Well, maybe the wall wasn't as busted down as I thought it was when we got into the place. Maybe we didn't notice how smooth the walls was. Yeah, sure. But how are you going to explain that chair seat being warm when Marlene sat down on it? I didn't want to come here in the first place. That old guy scared the life out of me. There's no such thing as ghosts. You pick a swell time to make a statement like that, boy. Well, there ain't. Maybe there is no ghosts. But there are other things. Like what? I don't know. Like things that come up out of the ground. Oh, cut it out. Give me a cigarette, Pete. You're going to sit here all night in the rain? What'll I do? Fly out of here or something? Give me a match. Wait, I'll spit for you. Yeah. Let's get out of here. Wait till morning. We'll find a way out then. I wonder if we could reach the top of the wall if we stood on that chair. I don't know. You wouldn't get me to touch that chair for a million dollars. It was warm. Ah, that don't signify nothing. As to me. What about the suitcase? What? What'd you do with it? I'm sitting on it. Is it warm? Hot as a pistol. Oh, cut it out. Cut it out. Well, I'm scared. Look, babe, I don't like this any too well either. Just sit close to me, please. I'm cold. Well, move over this way. Well, don't worry, kids. In another couple of months, we'll come back and pick up our little prize package here. We'll be warm for life. All of us. If we ever get out of here. Ah, come on. You do that, Pete? No. What was it? I don't know. Stanley. Oh, well, wait a minute, Stanley. I think I know what it was. What? Wait. Stan? What? Come in. Careful now. In the damp darkness, I moved toward the sound of Pete's voice. He stuck my hand and put it on the edge of the hole I dug. See? What? A couple of bricks fell in the hole. Oh. Marlena, get back from the edge. What is this? Move back, honey. Light a match, Stanley. You got him. You like one. All right, stand back a little. And in the light from the match before it fizzled out in the rain, I saw what had made the sound. Two or three bricks had got loosened at the edge of the hole I dug and fallen in. And as I looked before the match went out, two more sagged and fell downward into that bottomless pit. Get back, Marlena, I yelled. Pete lit another match. Look out! The crack yawned open, and with a crash, a half a dozen more bricks tumbled into the hole. Below us, I could see the feeble glow of the flashlight way down there. It seemed to me the things crawled far, far below us in that horrible pit. Pete and I dragged Marlena away to the wall. There was a rumble, and the mouth of the pit grew bigger. 
It seemed that the glow from down there was growing stronger. We sat there, huddled against the slippery walls, frozen cold with terror. Another section of the floor fell in. The whole floor is going. Come on, we gotta get out. Marlena sobbing and Pete and I scrambling at the slippery walls. There wasn't a chance. Then the rumbling stopped for a second. We flattened ourselves against the bricks. In the light that came up from down there, I could see Pete's staring eyes and the tears of fright shining on Marlena's cheeks. I said, we gotta get out of here. Help me up the wall, Stanley. Ain't no use to try, boys. You can't get out. And I looked up. And there, sitting comfortably on the edge of the cellar wall, grinning at us in the light that flowed up from the pit in the cellar floor, was the old man Marlene and I had heard at the roadside restaurant. The old man had told a lurid story about Beezer's cellar. Ain't no use to try. You're stuck. Oh, help, help. Don't hope and holler, lady. Look, old man, give us a hand, will you? I heard tell of a fella long time ago that got down into this here cellar. Just like you done. Well, give us a hand. The floor is going. I know. The floor fell in with him, too. Well, help us. He killed a fella down towards Manitoba. And he come and hid here in the cellar. Give us a hand out of here. And the same thing happened to him. Never did find his body. More floor falling in, hey? Come on, give us a hand up out of here. Help us. Know what's down there? Fire and destruction. Listen, old man. Touch, boy. You know you hadn't ought to shot that poor fella at the bank up there in Chicago? Murder's bad. Uh, listen, we got a lot of money down here with us. I know it. You're criminals. Uh, we'll, we'll split it with you. Don't want no part of stolen money, bub. Ain't much more left, is there? They'll never find your body. Now listen, you old now, boy. don't call me, hey, put that pistol down. That won't do you no good, son. Too bad. Uh, listen, mister, for, for the... Uh, look, there's a woman down here. Yeah. Criminal? Like you too, boy. Uh, but look. Uh, look out, Marlene. Oh, Stanley. There's many things left to say. Here, Marlene. Kind of figured you were listening to me back there at Saltweather's stand. Kind of figured you'd come a kiting out here to the cellar. <laughs> Mister, listen to reason. Please just reach down and give us a hand. Kind of figured I'd come along and watch and see what had happened to you. Mighty interesting. Oh, if I could get my hands on you. Hands. Not unless I let you. You can't do this to us. We are people. We are. Please, I beg you. No, lady. No use of hollering. The wages of sin is death, I always say. You robbed and you murdered. So you got to be punished, see? You, you can't sit there and watch us die. <laughs> Another hunk of the floor is going. You better move over to one side. Oh, I'm going to get that old man. Put down your pistol, sonny. I'll get him. I told you, taint no use. Please, Pete, 
Get him! Get him! Listen, Sheriff, I... Uh... I ain't no sheriff. I'm just a feller interested in seeing justice done. I recognized you back there at the restaurant. And I thought to myself, I thought, well, I'll just hold these people here over to the cellar. And we leave things take their course. Uh, look out, Marlena. Oh, Haven't you any pity, man? Not much. Not much for thieves and murderers. He's crazy, Stanley. There's an insane asylum across the river there someplace. He's escaped from there. No, son. I ain't insane. Listen. What would you give to get out of there? You you can have half the money. Ain't much time for bargaining. Give it all to him, Stanley. That's better. You ought to be willing to give up all the money to save your life. Oh, yes, yes, yes. If I was in a fix like that, I'd give anything I got. Well, we won't. Yes, we will. Floor getting hot down there. Mighty interesting. Well? All right, you can have all the money. Help us out. I know you don't, Stanley. Hang it up. Stanley, how do we know he'll help us? Wait, don't give it to him. Uh, take it. Oh, no, no, no! And Pete leaped at the suitcase I was handing up to the old man. His fingers just touched the edge of the bag when another section of floor gave way right under him. He fell down and down and down and down, twisting and turning into the fire that kept coming higher and higher up the shaft, reaching for us. And the old man took the bag and set it down on the edge of the cellar. See? That might have been you, fella. Or you, lady. Help us out of here. It's good riddance. He was the one that shot the fellas at the bank up in Chicago. Uh, good riddance, I always say. Are you going to help? Sure, sure. Right in the nick of time. Here. Grab a hold of my hand, lady. I'm afraid. Get some lady posture, mister. Oh. There you are. Just as right as rain. All right. Now, you. And as the strong arms of the old man lifted me up over the lip of the cellar wall, the last section of the floor below us fell away into the fire. And just as if a play or something was over, the flames died down. First they were yellow, then purple, and then they just went out. Marlena grabbed my arm. Where did he go, Stanley? Where did he go? I don't... Hey, old man! Hey! Stanley! Come on, let's get out of here. Oh! What's this? Marlena! What? He didn't take the money. It's right here. And so I picked up the suitcase, and Marlene and I hacked our way through all that underbrush back to the road. We were just opening the door to the car to get in, go away from Beezer's cellar, when there was sawed-off shotguns in our faces, lights. I could see the state cop's badge behind the light. He laughed and said, Come on, kids, we're going for a ride. And it's very comfortable. Here in the little iron room at Stateville. 
Then I hear that Marlena's all right down there at the women's prison at Dwight. She can stay there for 20 years. Me? Well, I'm going to move. They got a tight little room here for people to get mixed up in murders. Little room you can walk into, but you can't walk out. All modern conveniences. Electricity and everything. Well, the old fellow said the wages of sin is death. And I... I guess I'd rather be here than in Beezer's cellar. I really am pretty grateful to the little old fellow. The little old fellow with the six fingers on the hand that pulled me out. And that was the always fabulous Quiet Please with Beezer's Cellar. Wonderful, right? Okay, so that's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Bonus show is on the way later this week, in which I'll be telling you all about one of the most brutal B-movie noirs I've ever seen. Seriously chilling stuff. If you want to hear all about it, then look out for your bonus show, which will be arriving for all patrons this week. And if you aren't a patron yet, then why not sign up? Only takes a moment, and not only do you get bonus editions of this show, but you'll also get an invite to the monthly film club night, which this month looks set to be a Bela Lugosi B-movie classic, as well as lots of other rewards. Just go to www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret or listen on to the end of this show for more details. Until next time then, my friends, thank you for being here. Take very good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books, and every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.